how do we make Jewish values and Jewish life feel relevant and welcoming and compelling to the next generation of young Jews around the world? From the Jewish Founders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I am Andres Pocoini, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our very first episode. I want What Gives to be a space for exploring and debating the issues that matter in philanthropy and in the Jewish community at large. And along the way, I hope we'll build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. And I want your input to make that happen. Whether you're a major funder or a small dollar donor, or just a deeply engaged Jew, or even someone in the philanthropic world who isn't Jewish, but is interested in the Jewish part of the philanthropic field, we want to hear from you. And you can help us shape this podcast into something you'll find valuable. So write to us at podcast at jfunders.org to tell us what you'd like to hear. But let's get to it. Our guest today is Lisa Eisen, who, besides being a great personal friend, is the president of the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Foundation U.S. Portfolio. Lisa also funded something that is very timely, the Safety, Respect and Equity Coalition, which promotes women's leadership and addresses issues of sexual harassment and gender discrimination in the Jewish community. She was also the founding board chair of Repair the World, the Israel on Campus Coalition, and the iCenter. Lisa is a brilliant funder and an incredibly effective leader. So I hope you'll find her insights as valuable as I do. So here's my conversation with Lisa Eisen. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Andres. Let's, let's start by talking about you. What, what brought you to the role you have now at the Schusterman Foundation? Did you ever think when you were back in your formative years that you would end up working in a foundation? I don't think it ever occurred to me that I would be working in a foundation. Um, I think the moment when I knew that I would be devoting my life to the Jewish people and to Israel was in high school on my first trip to Israel. Um, I'm not even sure I knew what a foundation was at that point, but I did know that I would be um, devoting myself and that my purpose would be to strengthen the Jewish people uh, and Israel as the homeland of the Jewish people and helping us contribute as a people to society as we were meant to do, to be a light into the nations. Did I know it was going to be in philanthropy? No, I, I worked in the nonprofit space for many years. Um, and I actually think that's a vital prerequisite to being good in philanthropy. You have to really understand what does it mean to, to run a nonprofit and to have um, those responsibilities of raising your budget and managing a team and being responsible for salaries and, and program and everything else. I, I think I personally feel that one of the key lessons for philanthropy is to, is to be able to walk in the shoes of the grantees that you support and to, do that with humility and listening. So I think it was good preparation to run nonprofits before coming to philanthropy. Do you see it as a, as a problem in the field of philanthropy today that we not we don't know enough 
how the actual life of a nonprofit works? I do. Um, uh, how that? How do you see that? How that? How it comes? How to express itself? Look, we're a, a sort of a blossoming field, the Jewish philanthropy field, and um, that means that there are a lot of staff coming on, a lot of hires being made, and I don't feel that um, they're getting the appropriate training. And what does it mean to do effective philanthropy? And what does it mean to operate and lead in a nonprofit space? And I feel that we're, we're seeing it in, you know, a lot of young professionals who've never run an organization, maybe <laughs> never even worked in a nonprofit, are playing vital roles and, and shaping our community and shaping our grantees. Um, and I personally don't feel like it's being done with enough humility. Um, with enough sense of partnership, with enough sense of understanding of what does it take to run a nonprofit. Um, and um, I, I'd like to see less hubris and less um, um, sense of I know what I'm doing and more sense of I'm with you, I'm listening to you, I'm listening to your needs, I'm listening to your constituents, and I know what it takes to do the work, and I'm going to treat you with respect and 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 partnership because of that. And yet, working for a foundation is, is not as easy as people think. There are other sets of challenges that a nonprofit may not have. Do you want to talk a little bit about those? Like, what are the, what are the main issues about working at a foundation that people that look from the outside are not even aware of? Right. I think people look at, um, at foundation professionals and say, oh, that's the easiest job, you know, it, they don't, they have no idea of what we're going through. And I would say, I feel very honored and privileged and responsible to be in the role that I'm in and to be able to work in philanthropy. And it's not as easy as it looks, um, to really be able to take the philanthropic vision of funders and translate it into impact on the ground, um, to invest resources effectively. And, um, again, with, with the right kind of a partnership and humility and to make tangible change and to hold yourself accountable for that, it's not easy. Um, and so you're balancing a lot of different things and you're balancing the interest of your, your board and your, your funders, your, your grantees, the trends in the field. Um, I remember when I first entered the field, I read an article about like the 19 different hats that a foundation professional wears, right? Um, you're playing a lot of roles and uh, figuring out how to hold all of them and do them well and, and make an impact for the, the higher purpose that you're serving is not always uh, a walk in the park. The Chosen Foundation has a, has a tradition of funding and seeding uh, Jewish innovation. What are some of the, some of the overall lessons that you that you learned from that work like what all jewish innovators have in common or those that succeed what do they ha what do they have in common and what those that don't succeed those that don't manage to go to scale why do you think that is you have to be willing to take a risk um our foundation is you know we we our funders are risk takers charles always said i'm, I'm not afraid to drill dry holes lynn was always willing to take risks stacy's willing to take risks and, and so we, we want to help uh, entrepreneurs and visionaries take risks. So I, I do think um, you have to be a, a visionary and a dreamer and um, someone who sees what's possible and not just what exists. And you also have to have an execution strategy. You can't just be a visionary and not have an execution strategy. And so 
one of the things that I've seen in the effective innovators is they know, you know, they put in what they need to do for startup. It's like a startup business, but they also know that they are maybe not the right person to manage the sustainability phase, the second phase and the third phase. And they, they hire the right team um, who's better at the management and the operations and the things that it takes to, to go to scale um, uh, and that they're able to let go of some of that. I think you just also have to be an amazing communicator. You have to be able to articulate your vision uh, in a way that is compelling to people, understanding to people and, and, and measurable for people. Uh, and so to be able to get investors in that vision, you have to be able to communicate ROI and, and the need. So those are a couple of the common traits that I see in, in the innovation space. Right. And, and um, now going back to the challenges of being working in a foundation and being a founder, as a professional, what is the tension between your own voice and channeling the voice of the funder? You know, some folks don't have living funders, but you right. guys do. Um, I am very fortunate. I'm extremely aligned. My values and my passions and my vision are very aligned with my funders. So generally, there's not a lot of conflict with the voice. But I know that it's not my money. I never forget that. Um, I am carrying out the philanthropic vision of the Schusterman family. And I do everything I can to represent their voice. They listen to me. I think they trust me. And so we can have a give and take. But um, uh, what is the difference between a good to a great leader is it's not about your ego. It's not about you. It's about the cause and the, and the purpose that you're serving. And that is what guides me. It's why I really, I, I haven't had a lot of conflict. Yeah. My uh, advice to, to foundation professionals is that they have to master the art of self-effacement. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's again, in this balance of, you know, on the one hand, you're, you're, you're sublimating, if you ever do have a disagreement with your funder, you know, you're sublimating that. I, I would venture to say that if you have too many places where you feel conflict, you're probably not working in the right place. But you also are balancing this role that you play vis-a-vis -vis the field where you never really know if anyone's being fully honest with you because they need the resources. Right, right. But, um, but, but at the same time, you don't want to be a, a yes woman to your funder. You, you, want to, you want to be able to challenge them and say... Do you, do, you remember, do you remember a specific situation in which you had a strong disagreement with Lynn or with Stacey? I'm not interested in the, in the, in the disagreement itself. I'm interested in, in how, the, how the dynamic of the relation works when you have a strong opinion against something that the founder wants. How do you go about influencing them or you know, negotiating with them? Right. A um, couple things. I'm firm in my opinion and I'm respectful but I will share my opinion. I will try to present the different points of view and the pros and cons of why, you know, maybe the approach they're taking may not be the most effective approach. Um, ultimately, I will, of course, do what they want to do. But, um, but I do express my opinions and let them see the full picture. I also try to serve as an interlocutor and a bridge between the needs of what I see as the needs of the grantees and the constituents the needs of our team and their desires and their wants and try to almost be like the translator, the interpreter and the bridge between all those voices. Sometimes the balance is off. I, I know that at the beginning when I came straight from the nonprofit field, I had more of the hat of the, of the grantee. And um, you have to sort of be 
hold the space where everybody, the, the funder feels like their vision is being carried out and the grantee feels like their needs are being respected. Right. So you, you play that, you play the role of a bridge between, between the, bridge, the, the, you know, the negotiator, the, the translator. <laughs> right. Shuttle diplomacy, as Kissinger used to call it. But, but I think it's really vital because ultimately, you know, Lynn and Stacey, the, their interaction with the field is very, is very limited. And, and, if, and if people are not fully honest with foundation professionals, even less with the funders themselves. So, so sometimes the role of the professional needs to be telling truth to power because nobody else is going to, to say that. Yes. And I'm, and I'm able to do that. I, this is, I'm about to celebrate my 18th anniversary. Mazeltov. And uh, I've known the family since I was, before I was 18 myself. So um, I'm able to have those honest conversations with them. Um, thankfully, and they listen and they respect, and 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 I respect what they decide. So, the foundation you've been eighteen years in the foundation, and now the foundation, as is public knowledge, is undergoing a, a transition of leadership. Um, you know, both in the in the lay side and in the professional side. What reflections do you have about the new role that Shusraman is going to play? How the change works, the stresses and the and the challenges of change. Um, one thing that has stood out to me during this period of generational change, because it's really, you know, from the parents to the next generation is what an amazing model Stacey and Lynn have offered of how to change the reins from one generation to another. Uh, they did such a beautiful dance of respect with each other and of, you know, making sure that each was ready for whatever they were taking on and dialoguing about it really openly and honestly. And, um, you know, easing Stacy in as, as Lynn, you know, was deciding what role. So I, I think one day I'd like to write a little bit about. Yeah, I was going to suggest that you should, you should, because yeah. How they have done this organization, this uh, generational change, which I thought was really, and Lynn is unbelievable. She's really said, Stacy, it's your foundation. Now you take the reins, you make your decision. So that's been, I think, really beautiful. And um, not surprisingly, you know, a younger generation has a different, a slightly different vision of what they want for the future and how they view the Jewish community and their, how they want their values playing out. And that's, that's happening with us. We are very lucky that Stacey is deeply committed to the Jewish community in Israel. If anything, our funding has increased in our traditional areas. And she's also very interested in a lot of other areas from education to women's rights productive health, criminal justice. So we're expanding. And I would say if we're, we're shifting our emphasis a little bit in the Jewish space from focus solely on identity to how do we bring Jewish values out into the world so the Jewish mm -hmm. community can contribute to society and making the world a better place. Back to the question of generational transition, can you point out to one specific philosophical difference between Lynn and Stacy in terms of how the foundation should operate? I think, I, I don't know that it's a philosophical difference, but it might just be more of an emphasis. Uh, you know, when Charles passed away, Lynn has been running the foundation and Stacy's been running the business. And I think now we are... Um, we're running the foundation a little bit more like a business, you know, in terms of how we have structured our, our growth and our professional team and our metrics. 
and our shared services of, uh, uh, of a growing foundation staff. Um, I think we're taking a little bit more of a, of a data-driven and business orientation approach. Not that we weren't rigorous before, but, but really being very crisp about our strategy, our outcomes, our metrics, and our systems for holding ourselves accountable for the change we want to see. You mentioned that you, know, you want to see Jewish values communicated onto the world. What do you think are the, the critical issues for the Jewish community today? Like if somebody would say, you know, rapid, rapid fire, tell me what you think are the most critical issues that the Jewish community faces today? Well, I can tell you the three things that I think uh, are, in, are in my mind. One is how do we make Jewish values and Jewish life feel relevant and welcoming and compelling to the next generation of young Jews around the world? And, and that is going to involve opening up the community to feel a lot more representative of its full diversity, you know, to, to be able to, to recognize that almost 20% of Jews in America are Jews of color, LGBTQ Jews, women in leadership, people um, who are coming from different backgrounds who want to be, maybe they want to be part of the Jewish community, but they haven't been welcomed in. They don't see themselves represented in leadership and they want to see their own values shaping the future. I think creating that kind of beautiful, rich, diverse tapestry and celebrating it and opening our doors to that and, and walking the talk of our values, that's the kind of community I think we're trying to shape. If we don't do that, we're going to lose the next generation. Right. Yeah, Because we're not anymore a majority and a minority. We are a mosaic of many, of many minorities in a way. Exactly. Exactly. So that I see as a challenge that we've been honed in on and that we are, you know, more and more now, you know, we've been a leader in LGBTQ Jews and opening up the community. We're now working with others to do that for Jews of color. And we want this to be the most inclusive uh, community possible. The second, um, speaking of, you know, majority minority, the majority of the world's Jews are going to be living in Israel very soon, not already. And um, this growing divide between between Israel and world Jewry is something that is very much on our minds. We would like to stem that divide and bring uh, more uh, alignment and more unity. We spent a lot of time investing in bringing people to Israel to connect with Israelis and, and vice versa, bringing Israel to, um, to America and to world Jewry. And the trends are, are going in a difficult direction right now. Right. You know, it reflects the, the broader global trends of polarization and uh, populism and, and different perspectives on, on how to approach democracy. I'm always optimistic that we will get through it, but I think you know, we're in a bit of a painful period that we need to uh, address. We need to listen to each other more respectfully. And then the third thing that I think we can't ignore is growing anti-Semitism around the world. I'm not a person who uh, has been alarmist. Uh, we do a lot of work on college campuses and people scream, you know, the campuses are on fire. I actually now, I'm not going to use the phrase, the campuses are on fire, but we cannot ignore that this is full-on anti-Semitism, real threat on our campuses, in our country, and in our global community. And we, we need to come up with some strategies to, to attack. So, so let me pick on that for a second. Uh, I know you've been uh, committed to campus work for, for a number of years. You guys are main partners of the ICC and other, and other initiatives. How do you feel about the work that we as a community are are doing on campus? Like, what do you think are our achievements? What frustrates you from what you see in campus? 
Are we being effective? What should we change? Yes. So I'm very proud of a lot of the work that has happened on campuses. I think college students and the broader university community have more diverse offerings and opportunities to be engaged with Jewish life in Israel in all different manifestations than has ever existed. I mean, we've just created a real plethora of gateways for people to engage and get involved. And and I believe that we do have a generation of young Jews who are proud to be Jewish, who have had some experience with Israel. And in some ways, it's the best of times. And on the other hand, it's also the worst of times. <laughs> it's a tale of two cities. The, 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 the good is getting better, the bad is getting worse. I, I would say that is somewhat true, um, that we're now living in a, a, a dra- drastically different environment, uh, as I alluded to earlier, in which being pro-Israel, being a Zionist, even being Jewish on a campus is being positioned by people who are trying to undermine Israel and delegitimize Israel that's being positioned as antithetical to what the university stands for. You know, this is not an organic grassroots student movement, this this movement to undermine Israel and to uh, drive fear and a lack of confidence among Jews on campus. This is a well-funded, sophisticated, systematic movement to go at what they see as a soft spot in the, in the American community and the world community and go at faculty and go at trustees and go at students and undermine the ability for people to feel connected to the right of Jews to have their own homeland. And it's insidious. And I think that there are some efforts like the Israel Campus Coalition and Hillel and others that are really the academic engagement network, engaging faculty that are standing up and really trying to support the right to be a proud Jew and a proud Zionist on a college campus. But we're going to have to ramp up those efforts because our detractors are getting more sophisticated and progressive. The polarization that exists within Israel, exists within the American Jewish community and between us, it is really playing out for for young people in a big way. Uh, And, you know, you asked about the generational change at our foundation and what kind of emphasis we may do differently. One of the priorities that you're going to see us focusing on in the coming years is how to create much more space for respectful, nuanced, informed discourse between people about Israel especially. And we want to do that on campus. We want to do it with young people. We need to listen to each other. We need to respect each other. We need to be able to hold multiple narratives and not demonize people. And we also have to know that, you know, political change happens and there are difficult moments and uh, there has to still be also a sense of hope for the future. And We are also actively working in Israel to make sure that Israel remains a Jewish democratic state that respects all of its citizens so that it's a country that people can feel proud about. Let me shift here for, for a minute. You mentioned LGBT rights. And I'm, and I'm uh, reminded of how Schusterman did many things to, to, to foster rights of, of LGBTQ Jews and, and non-Jews in the community, from supporting Keshet to have uh, questions to grantees about how they do this. Just can you reflect a little bit, what are the different things that a funder can do besides funding to uh, affect change in the community? 
I mean, many of the change you did with the LGBTQ uh, field wasn't about funding. Right. So that is actually a, a really important message I would like to uh, convey today, which is philanthropy is a large and diverse toolbox. It's not, of course, grant making funds are, are a core of that. But there are a lot of other tools at our disposal, and we used those, all of them, I believe, when we tried to open up the Jewish community to be more welcoming to LGBTQ Jews. Uh, we're using them now um, with other issues we care about, like Jews of color and safety, respect, and that involves convening power, partnerships, and collaboration with other funders and with other grantees, thought leadership. Uh, Lynn wrote in a lot of op-eds. She spoke. We spoke as a team, uh, research and evaluation. We created the, um, an entire study in partnership with the Human Rights Coalition to, uh, to look at uh, sort of a scale of how open organizations were and to help move them along to improve their practices on, on welcomeness and, and, uh, and equality. And we use research and evaluation as key tools uh, to achieve that work. Capacity building grants. Um, and capacity building assistance from our team in terms of strategy, board service, communications help, storytelling help, evaluation and data collection help, providing, and this is really crucial from my perspective, and it does have to do with the money, but it also has to do with how our staff deploy the time. We believe that the most effective way to do philanthropy is multi-year general operating support and capacity building support to enable organizations to take risks to function effectively, to have the staff and the overhead that they need to achieve their missions. And, and ultimately, without that, philanthropists can't achieve their missions. And also the staff support, the, the professional staff of our foundation spends a lot of time providing technical assistance to our grantees. And then another pillar that we have developed is leadership development, because we have learned that investing in the organization uh, and strengthening the organization can only go so far without the right leaders and the right talent. So, you know, we developed the Schusterman Fellowship. We invested back to the LGBT work. We invested in the leaders of the space, their capacity to lead and their ability to create a pipeline. So those are some of the many tools I think that philanthropy has at its disposal. And to be really effective in driving change, you have to use a lot more than just dollars. You also have to have both a sense of urgency and patience. When hearing, you know, that how much you believe in, in multi-year funding and in capacity building, I don't know who said it, but uh, the three key words about philanthropy is fewer, bigger, longer. Fewer issues, but stay at them for long and make a bold investment in them. I, I believe in that. Um, you asked me about some of the things I was worried about about the field. One of the things I'm worried about is I'm seeing more restrictive funding more program support as opposed to multi-year general operating support. You know, of course, sometimes you need to make a programmatic grant for something, but generally commit yourself to a leader, to an issue you care about, and let them know that you're going to be with them and you're going to learn with them and you're going to grow with them and you're going to be, you know, able to pivot with them and give them the, the ability to take risks and have the, the team they, they need to actually deliver the goals. That is effective philanthropy, and I, I actually unfortunately see people going in the opposite direction. Right. So in terms of making systemic change in the community, you mentioned the work on the LGBTQ 
issue and now you're uh, embarked on another cultural change uh, coalition which is SRE what brought you to to that right so SRE is safety respect and equity which is a coalition that is working together across the Jewish community to address sexual harassment and gender discrimination and to advance women's leadership and gender equity i've been working in jewish communal life for decades And uh, especially in the midst of the Me Too movement, it, it's been painfully clear to me that our community is not immune to the same kind of inequities and power dynamics and also just discrimination that exists in other sectors. I've seen the dearth of women leaders, though it's getting a little better. I've seen the, the pay inequities that you can see in the forward salary survey every year with the first woman being number 29 uh, or 28. And... Uh, I and many of my colleagues experienced harassment. So I felt that uh, as someone who's a, a woman leader uh, in, in the field and who works for two strong and, and caring women philanthropists, that I had a responsibility to step up and use some of those tools I just described, the convening power, um, the collaboration, the ability to, to bring different resources together to help make our community safer and more respectful and ethical and, and give voice to people who didn't feel they had the power to give the voice. I will say that to me, this is an, an ethical calling uh, for, for our community to live out our values by treating people respectfully and fairly, but it's also extremely pragmatic. Mm -hmm. We are not going to be able to have talented professionals and talented volunteers working in our community and volunteering in our community If they don't feel that they're respected, if they don't feel they're in a safe space, they don't feel like this is an attractive, compelling environment in which to work. Yeah, in the leading edge survey, uh, a lot of people mentioned this as a disincentive to work in the field. Right. Um, and we don't have the luxury of losing these people. Even if you, even if you didn't care about the issue from the ethical perspective, from the pragmatic perspective, uh, we need that talent in the Jewish community. But on the one hand, there is the ethical calling, the, the calling and the moral dimension of it. On the other hand, is the the nitty-gritty, the mechanics of building a coalition, because SRE is ultimately a coalition of very diverse partners that have different visions of, of the problem and of the issues and how to go about it. So share with us a little bit about the, the process of building that coalition. Right. There's so much in the idea of, of building this coalition, um, and I'll just bring up a couple of salient points. One, we felt that we were trying to make, we want to make culture change, systemic change. And therefore, we needed to behave differently. And so this could not be a funder-driven initiative. Though I do want to say we recognized from the very beginning that funders are part of the problem. So funders needed to be part of the solution. But we made a decision from the beginning to make this as broad and inclusive as possible and to do everything in partnership between funders, organizations, uh, and practitioners, and then experts in the field. And so we put together from the very beginning a broad coalition, 60 organizations launched this together. Over 100 organizations have adopted the commitment and are implementing the standards at this point. And I believe deeply that we will go much further and be much more successful because we are a broad coalition of people working for a shared purpose under a common banner. And I think that's already been borne out because we have such a diverse representation of people of networks and kinds of people across the community. It gives people a broad umbrella, cover, a feeling of being part of something bigger than themselves. And of course, no one, no one organization, no one funder can make this kind of culture change alone. Just like Bill Gates can't cure malaria alone. 
So um, those are the positive sides of, of being in a broad coalition. It's hard. Um, people have diverse interests. They operate in different ways. Some people, I sort of came into this from a very pragmatic point of view, like we need to get people training and update their policies and have a leadership commitment and make sure they have the right, you know, investigative and reporting things in place. Other people are coming at it from a very activist point of view and want to make statements and, you know, have, have a big local, a local uh, role. We want it to be organic, but you also have to be top down if you want to drive change effectively and quickly. You want some people like me who like to go really fast and other people who want to be thoughtful and planful and go slower. So when you're in a coalition, you're balancing and holding a lot of polarities. The change happens in the middle of all of that. Right. And, you know, you have to hold all of that in order to really change a culture and change organizations and, and change leaders. And so it hasn't been um, always easy, but I believe in the long run, it's going to get us further. Yeah. And and for what it's worth, I think that, you know, your your leadership of uh, SRE is wise and balanced and pragmatic and uh, ethical at the same time. So Koloka votes for that. No, you mentioned Jews of Color before. and And for me. You know, it was hard to actually imagine what Jews of color go through until somebody walked me through very concrete examples of what a Jew of color feels, you know, being, you know, like being mistaken for the help when they go into a synagogue, being asked, how come you're Jewish? You know, that me being white and typically Ashkenazi, I was completely blind to that kind of, you know, insidious. And being a man, I guess that something similar may happen to me in terms of the challenges that women face in the workplace. What do you think? Like you're a woman leader in 2019, leading a team, managing an important foundation. What are the challenges of leading and managing as a woman in this day and age? Well, let me first say what the opportunities and blessings are, because this is the year of the woman. Uh, (laughs) And and if if I have it my way, many years going forward will be uh, the the year of the woman. I I do think we, thankfully, are seeing more women in leadership. We have more women philanthropists in our community who have taken the reins. Yet, if you look at the overall statistics, 70% of the Jewish workforce is women and 30% is men. But 30% 30% of the CEOs are women, 70% are men. So we need, we need to balance that out. And, and I think studies show that women lead differently. They're, they lead more um, uh, collaboratively and in a more consensus-driven way and, and also are very focused on um, giving for impact. Studies also show that companies that are women-led are more profitable and have less harassment. So I do think even just by bringing more women into leadership, we will address some of the issues that we're, that we're dealing with. The challenges are um, there's still a lot of um, inherent sexism. And, um, and I think some of it is, is just built into the system. Um, some of it, I think it's not malintended. People don't even realize, you know, what some of these kind of implicit biases are about women versus men and the, and the, the extent of the pay disparities, people doing the same job and making, you know, 15, 20% less for the same work. So I think we're dealing um, with trying to change some of those perceptions and helping people just be more aware of, of what are inherent um, gender discrimination. I think Leading Edge is doing a fabulous job right now of bringing a gender equity lens to helping people think about search committees, to helping think about, um, 
you know, how you create job descriptions. There's still a very, I believe, male view of leadership of what, what does leadership mean in the Jewish world? And so I think we need to sort of shift and broaden our definition of what does leadership look like. And I will just say in the broader context, unfortunately, I believe that in our country, uh, we're moving backwards in terms of women. I mean, the midterm elections were great. We got a lot of women into Congress, but uh, women's rights, reproductive rights are being challenged in you know enormous ways. And um, thankfully, foundations like ours is gonna are gonna step up and, and put resources into those areas and try to preserve the rights and the uh, freedoms of of women, especially women who are marginalized. But again, I would say best of times, worst of times. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of challenges, and we also have seen a lot of problems. Yeah, and 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 in a way, it reminds me of what you said before about campus in terms of the generational dialogue there is probably room for generational dialogue in this issue as well. We hear time and again, well, in my generation, for people of a certain age, these behaviors are kind of obvious and young people feel that that's completely unacceptable. And, and, and maybe in some cases there is, there is just you know, a dimension of beingness involved, but in many cases it's just people really don't know or are not aware of the sensitivities involved. So maybe there is room for, for having that dialogue. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Andres. And, and I, going back to what I was saying about bridge building, I, I think both because of the generation that I'm in between those young people and the older yeah, still young. I hope I'm not considered the older generation yet. Um, I'm getting there. But um, I feel like I'm, I'm in between those generations. And also because of the role I feel like philanthropy can play, we need to help create the spaces to, bring, to bridge those viewpoints on Israel on gender issues, on understanding the diversity of our community, because I think here in America, like the older generation just thinks this is a white Ashkenazi community. And then you look on a college campus and 20% are Jews of color, African-American, Latino, Asian, you know, Mizrahi. It's a different community and we need to help people see each other and hear each other and, and respect each other. Our community will be so much stronger if we can be a place where all of that can coexist respectfully. What makes you hopeful about the future? In order to be able to last as long as I am in this field, you have to maintain optimism. It's so easy to fall prey to cynicism and being jaded and, and throwing up your hands, and you cannot. You have to have hope and optimism. The Jewish people has survived and thrived and contributed to this world for millennia, and we will contribute too. We will continue to do that. We are resilient. We are strong. We are resourceful. We've always had divisions. We've always gone through horrible hardships, but we have survived. We are creative, innovative. Jews in America are in the most unbelievable position um, the Jews in history have been in. And we have our own country, our own homeland that we are leading. We're, all, we're doing all of it imperfectly, but the odds were so against us. And here we are, like still so creative and innovative and thriving and, and contributing to a better world in so many ways. What else could, could give you more hope and optimism than that? And that was the first episode of What Gives? 
in a moment, we'll preview next week's episode. But first, thank you so much to Lisa Eisen. You can learn more about Lisa's work with the Schusterman Foundation and beyond at schusterman.org. And thank you all for tuning in. As I said at the beginning, we want to hear your feedback, your quetches, your praise, whatever you want to tell us. Write us at podcast at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at www.jfunders.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. Next week, we'll talk Russian-speaking Jews and more with Ilya Salita, president and CEO of the Genesis Philanthropic Group. There are more Russian-speaking Jews in New York than all of Jews in South America. There are more Russian-speaking Jews in New York than all of Jews in Canada. The organized American Jewish community is getting a sense of fatigue of trying to engage those who came from the former Soviet Union, and I think that's a big mistake. Be sure to subscribe in your podcast app to catch that episode. I'll leave you with this thought from the Talmud that I find particularly useful. It's from Berachot 4a. Teach your tongue to say, I don't know. So stay humble, keep giving, and join us next time for What Gives.